You're listening to Young African Entrepreneur, Episode 18. Welcome to Young African Entrepreneur, the leading resource for starting and growing a business for flourishing entrepreneurs in Sub-Saharan Africa. Join in as we discuss tactical advice, personal motivators, and unexpected surprises for industry leaders and market professionals as they chart their own path to success. It's your time, your journey, your Africa. So please welcome your host, Victoria Crandall. Welcome to another episode of Young African Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Victoria Crandall. Today's guest is Florida Uzuaru, the CEO of SlideSafe, Nigeria's first STI self-testing kit delivery service. You can connect with her at The Sex Lady on Facebook and SlideSafeNG on Twitter and Instagram. You can also find her on LinkedIn at Florida Uzuaru. Despite coming from a commercially-minded Nigerian family, Florida grew up hating sales. For her, it was like begging. In her 20s, she entered the public health profession and became passionate about promoting safe sex in Nigeria, which has one of the world's highest rates of HIV infection, yet only 10% of Nigerians actually get tested for the disease to publicly promote her business. She thought she could be a behind-the-scene founder. After all, she grew up hating sales. But she finally told herself to stop running away from taking on a public role as founder of SlideSafe. And since then, Florida has become a fierce and vocal advocate of her business and adopting safe sex practices in Nigeria. Florida speaks candidly about her many pivots during her entrepreneurial journey, as well as the difficulties she faced while refining the messaging of SlideSafe. Its original name was Sex in a Box, but that didn't go down too well in conservative Nigeria. She also talks about her experiences at the CC Hub and Tony Alumalu Accelerator programs, the nuanced challenges of being a female entrepreneur, and why subscription services just don't work in Nigeria. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Florida Uzuaru. Florida, welcome to Young African Entrepreneur. I'm thrilled to have you on the show. Thank you. Uh, Florida, you've written candidly that you are not a natural business person. You've written before that you hated selling when you were younger because you always thought it was like begging. And I'm fascinated to know, how did you go from hating to sell to being an entrepreneur where you're selling all the time, whether it's yourself or your business? Okay, I didn't expect this question. <laughs> okay, so what happened was, well, I knew that I needed to do something that I was quite interested in because, like I said, I wasn't, I'm not a natural uh, business person, even though my mom and my dad are, you know, they're both uh, people who have 
who went, you know, had their own businesses and stuff like that. I, on the other hand, wasn't um, that sort of a person because growing up, I actually quite hated asking for things. And my mom would always go out and, you know, she used to go to Dubai then. She would buy clothes and then she would, you know, ask us to, you know, help sell it for her and she still does that today you know some of the time she go gets things because she lives in the uk and then she'll send some things back and said okay you know sell this for me and my elder sister was always the person who does that and i didn't like it because i just kind of found it's as if you were begging people and i didn't enjoy that so it was at the top of my head that i had to be mindful that I had to, you know, talk to people. Initially, I had this naive idea that, oh, all I had to do was just to walk, be the behind the scene person, you know, walk on something and then let someone else be the front person. People kept on telling me, no, at this point, you can't do that. Nobody has your passion. Nobody will be able to sell it as much as you would. And it was actually found that that to be true because I remember in the first couple of months when I actually actually someone I paid someone a copywriter to do you know a write-up about a sales pitch more or less about Slicefe and I do you know I never used what the person wrote because at the end of the day I just kind of realized the person didn't really understand it as much as I did and you know I kind of told myself to stop running away uh, from doing this and just know that I was you know this had to be what happened but then again it was a sort of easier for me in a way because I was selling online per se it wasn't a face-to-face thing so it felt less as you know like you know copping hand and say oh here please do this for me and so online kind of created a little bit of that disconnect where I could slip on you know someone else's personality and go to my thing and then come back and be myself sort of a thing so yeah I think that's pretty much how I can explain that. Oh, okay. So that helps. So it seems to me from what I understand is that you had this idea. It was something you were passionate about, you know, promoting safe sex in your home country of Nigeria. And then it was just, you came to the conclusion like, well, no one's as passionate about this as I am. And so I have to be an entrepreneur. I have to go running with this idea and to make it grow. Not exactly. Like I've always been, I've always written about sex. And this is while, because I used to write, I used to be a columnist in a newspaper. So I'd always written about sex and I'd also worked in NGOs and I knew about the writing part and I knew about the NGO part and I knew I didn't want to do either of them on a professional level. Why Um, was that? These were things that I've done. Okay, so there is a thing about awareness. When you do awareness, at the end of the day, awareness gives you the ideal situation where you still have to deal with what is on ground let's this is for example someone can come on air and talk about how you need to have a conversation between you and your partner you know about safe sex and all that if on ground using safe buying commodities for you know to make safe sex possible if there is nothing on ground you know to make it easy for people to actually buy those things it only ends at the conversation part of it you understand it doesn't quite go very far and so I knew that I wasn't just going to stop at just the oh this is an awareness you know in teaching all that there had to be a situation where people have an opportunity to actually uh, practice you know that I can't tell people oh you're supposed to have safe sex and then 
realizing that it's very difficult to actually get sexual health products that make safe sex possible. And that's a difficulty and I'm not trying to address it. So that was how that bit happened. So I wanted to do, I felt that in, you know, because I've worked in NGOs and one of the things that happens with NGOs is that, you know, once the donor money finishes, you know, then the NGO has to go around looking for another money. And when a donor comes in, the donor detects, you know, uh, the methods uh, for which the NGO is going to operate. And some of the times there's not a lot of continuity between the first donor and the second donor. So some of the times you find sustainability to be a problem, you know, because the donors are the ones who decide. Yeah, uh, absolutely. What kind You're always, of communication. Yeah. yeah. Always what chasing kind of communication money. Yeah. Approach to, yeah. You know, what kind of communication approach to address, what population you're supposed to be addressing or even the location and things like that. So the donors have all the power in deciding this is what we want to do and some of the times decision made by the donors top down you know they make the decision in dc they make the decision in london they make the decision in new york and then you then have to implement it in africa then implement and some of the times it's you know like in business really especially as in a small business you're learning from your customer and you're able to make quick changes as it's going on you know because you're getting the feedback and you're making quick changes the structure of a lot of the NGOs especially in their relationship with donors does not allow you know for that kind of quick execution because a lot of the time the the plan are done six months one year ahead of time and people have to follow through that plan and you have to have a serious justification for why you have to deviate from a plan that has been made and signed off by everybody in dc and london you can't change it so there wasn't a lot of flexibility in making in doing such things so i knew from the start that i wanted to do this and i wanted to do this from a entrepreneurship angle for the fact that i was trying to do something that was quite new to me and also quite new to nigeria in a way so i didn't have a module that i could say oh this is how these people have done it and they've done it successfully so i had to learn on the job and i needed the flexibility of a small business you know to be able to learn lessons and also implement make small changes without necessarily changing a lot of things. Well, and you had to pivot in the very beginning because you had a different business model than the one you actually yes. adopted with SlideSafe. So tell us that story. Oh, okay. So uh, what happened in the beginning when I had the whole idea of doing this, the problem I wanted to solve, the problem I felt that was really existing was the problem of the lack of family planning information. Because what basically happens is that most young people do not know a lot about family planning, especially young unmarried people. They do not know much about family planning. A lot of the government and NGO-driven family planning services focus on married people. You know, a lot of the information and communication, you know, is quite heavily tilted towards the married people. There wasn't much for the young or married people. So this was the population I wanted to, you know, help and say, you know, let us give you good information about it because you just find some very funny people saying, oh, this is, for example, IUD. Someone actually said, IUDs for married people. And when I tried to ask her, you know, how come IUDs for married people, you know, she didn't know why. 
IUD was for married people, but she just knew that IUD was for married people. And that's basically because much all the people she knew that had IUD were married people. So she just basically made the assumption that IUD was used by married people. So it was more or less about you know, giving that information and then provide what I was trying to do was to provide a means for those at the industry, the health service. A health system was not typically, you know, addressing their needs. Said, okay, this is an opportunity for you to make up a, a discrete purchase for contraceptives and, you know, to go ahead and use it. So that was my original business plan. You know, I had everything all sorted out. And then I discovered quite sadly that just enough people weren't interested in family planning enough young people weren't interested in family planning a lot of them it's sort of cultural as well as you know there's a really huge fear about contraceptives and that fear was really a lot of it and so there was that big problem about that florida i'm just going to jump in here so when you say a fear of contraceptives what was the fear oh they weren't going to have children you know, when they use it or, you know, they're going to gain a lot of weight when they use it. Or even I know someone who says that, you know, big uh, side effects, you know, she talked a lot about it. You know, she talked a lot about side. In fact, you couldn't talk about contraceptives without 50 or 60 percent of the people, you know, talking about side effects. And this is people who have themselves never used a contraceptive, never experienced a side effect. But there was the noise of the side effects was really loud. And for many people, it wasn't something, you know, that they were willing to, you know, overlook. And of course, there was that problem of what if I can have children after using this? So a lot of people were more willing to have a child first and then use contraceptives. Or even if something happens, they would have already have had one child, you know, just in case the contraceptives okay. doesn't work. And just so, to clarify, yeah. and this is for birth control pills. Yes, this is for okay. birth control pills. Yes. Okay. So I then, so it was a little bit, most of the people who were interested were people, were Nigerians who lived outside Nigeria, but not Nigerians who lived within Nigeria. And, you know, I then went ahead and said, okay, I was trying to solve a problem that people did not want solved, more or less, you know. The younger people were not so much interested in contraceptives because they were already using some form of traditional means of birth control, you know, the withdrawal method, which a lot of people still use. And then there are people who swear by uh, using, what is it called? White quinine. That's one of the things that I heard. Wait, sorry, and what is that? People, I don't know. I actually discovered something called white quinine. <laughs> white qu- so Oh, like white, quinine. Yeah, white, specifically white quinine. I don't know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. But it was, it was pretty very popular. And so it was sort of how the white... So how it is being used as a... Let's use, for example, you have sex and you conception may or may not have happened, but if conception is about to happen, the white queenie makes stops it. So it was mm. that's just basically <laughs> the way it was being used. And then, of course, there is the bit about using seven up and salt. You know, all those really, really funny things. So most people were would swear by this. They've been using it and it's been working. So they didn't quite see why they had to, you know, not use it. And of course, for there was also the culture of if you were having sex with a man, 
you're sort of open to that, you know, he if you get pregnant, he would want to get married. So it wasn't so much as if getting pregnant was, you know, like a terrible thing. It may lead to marriage. So that's fine, especially for the people who can, like the age group that we're mostly interested in buying, uh, people in their 20s or thereabout. It was fine. If pregnancy comes now, it's not so terrible. Okay, kind interesting. Of, uh, yeah. Attitude. Yeah, that was happening with that. So they weren't going to plan for it. But if it happens, that's not, it's not the worst thing in the world sort of a thing. So that I just kind of realized that this was a culture that I was working with. And it's very difficult to change a culture, especially if you're trying to, you just, it's one person that it's very, yeah. very difficult. And you have to yeah, think about, so I, you know, keeping the lights on. So you yes. have, yeah, you need to develop a product for which there is demand. Yes. Uh, so that's just basically how that bit uh, stopped. So what I then did with SliceSafe was to take the most popular birth control method in Nigeria and just say, for this, I don't have to preach to people about it. Like, let's just, for example, to get somebody to use an IUD, to get a young girl to use an IUD, there's a, it's a much bigger messaging that has to happen than to, to get her to use a condom. So the condom, you know, has a little bit of uh, societal acceptability compared to an IUD. So I just said, okay, I was going to take the, you know, the fastest selling birth control methods we had in Nigeria, which was the condom and the emergency contraceptive bill. And the rest of the birth control methods that I had in mind, I just basically removed them. So what I then did was to then make up for my product line. I now had to add self-testing kits for hepatitis B and HIV. First, I started with just hepatitis B and HIV, and then I now added syphilis later on. How did you get the idea for selling the self-testing kits for these STIs? Okay, so someone, I was just basically having a conversation about uh, testing. You know, it was all rounded around, you know, the need for usage of condoms. And then started talking about, you know, knowing the status of the person that you're having sex with. And then this gentleman who, you know, like really enlightened, really, well, I won't say he's wealthy, but, he, you know, he's pretty, you know, he's okay. And then he tells me that he never does his HIV testing in Nigeria. He would rather wait till he's outside Nigeria to do his HIV testing. And then I asked, why do you wait till, you know, you travel out of Nigeria to do your HIV testing? And he says he doesn't want to see, you know, to look at the face of the nurse who is doing the testing for him and be worried that this nurse was going to go and, you know, do some and talk to some people. So that was basically his reason that he didn't want to have to worry, you know, that the nurse who was doing, who was taking his sample was going to go tell about it. So that was what, you know, brought in that the idea to me. There were a lot of people who are sexually conscious but right now, the way H HIV testing was being done in Nigeria, I mean, the popular way HIV testing was being done was that they had to go and meet someone who has to draw their blood and do testing and then come out and give them the results. And for some people, that was too much of a loss of privacy that they were not um, okay with. So that was just basically, uh, you know, uh, where that idea came about that, 
some people really cared about their privacy and I had to find a way to provide this self-testing kit so that they can actually do it at home and not have to worry about someone disclosing their status. Okay, so ensuring the customer's anonymity is the key selling proposition of SlideSafe. How yes. So how do you ensure that your customer's identity is protected? Okay, so one of the things we generally do is to let people know that they don't have to give their real name. We just, you know, I've always been very careful using delivery companies and delivery partners that do not require people to give out their the ID. Uh, basically, a lot of the times, some delivery companies would want you to give them their ID so that they can verify the name on the other and the name and you just to confirm that you are the person who made the other. So I was very careful not to, you know, with my relationship with delivery partners to say, I didn't want any of this. If it was a delivery partner who insisted that this was their business module, I couldn't work with them. And I had to look for those who were more lenient. And then the other thing that I basically did was, you know, limited the who had access to the customer information. So there are very few people working in SliceSafe who actually have, who know, you know, when the others come in. So there's very limited people who have the back end access to it, you know. So for much of the other people is more or less like, you know, you don't have to know someone's name to do a counseling for them. You just basically know that they've purchased a product like this and then they can do a counseling. And then, well, this is a bit superficial, but in the world of uh, true color where, you know, everybody's of name, you know, pops up, you know, when you make a call. So one of the things you're quite very sensitive to was not to call people by whatever name that pops up on true color. Some of the times the name that they put in in the other is very different from what true color pops up. So we really try to, you know, overlook that and just, you know, address them by the name that they have offered to us and not, you know, the name that the true color does so that we just know that at the end of the day, we really don't want people to start feeling that we were at any point going to reveal their name to anybody. And even some of the times when people send in their, what's it called, like a customer review, you're always, you know, we don't identify them or anything like that. We just go completely anonymous. Okay. And how do the payments work? The two things, people have the option of paying through Paystack or they can do a bank transfer or they can do a pay on delivery. So a lot of the times they could decide to do pay on delivery where they pay cash or they pay, you know, whichever method that they have. So that's how that works. Oh, okay. You're now doing payment on delivery because I know in, you know, maybe six months ago or a while ago, you weren't accepting payment on delivery just for logistical issues. Yes. Okay. Yes, I wasn't, but we now accept that, but we do... Because as a business module, pay on delivery is really awful. It's really, really bad because it leaves the business in holding all the risk in terms of if the customer doesn't take the product, you know, for some reason, you still have to pay the delivery company. You know, right. especially in a situation where you do not do your delivery yourself, you still have to pay the delivery company, regardless of whether the customer accepts the product. So on one hand, you want to make sure that the customer doesn't, you don't send what the person is going to get upset with and say they don't want it, you know, but then again, there's so many things that could make someone change their mind. 
and say they may not, you know, inform you ahead of time. And then suddenly the delivery person goes there and nobody is there or the person, you know, says, oh, I don't need this anymore. And then they change their mind. You still have to make that payment. And I felt as a small company, sort of operational costs, you know, a big you know, need to, you know, be mindful of people like Conga and Jumia may be able to absorb that and it wouldn't be a lot because they do their own deliveries and then they have um, the huge numbers. So any loss that comes in from a customer not wanting to carry on with the other, you know, it may not affect them as much as it would a smaller business. So initially I had said no, no pay on delivery. Uh, but, you know, there was often that a lot of distrust done by some customers who express a distrust that some of the times they have made payments uh, for products and then the merchants have not, you know, been able to, to you know, meet their own side of the transaction. So we then had to, you know, put in that pay on delivery book at a fee. So anyone who wants to do a pay on delivery, the person does it as a, as a fee. So there's a fee that we attached to the pay on delivery. Okay. And that's a good way to kind of protect yourself from any downside risk or yes. help minimize. Yeah. Okay. Yes. And, just to help well, and I'd love to know that it must be awfully difficult to market SlideSafe just because you're in Nigeria, you know, people, it's still taboo to talk about sexual health and whatnot. So how do you, how do you kind of get the word out about SlideSafe and promote your business? It was a walking, it's, it's still a walk in progress because I don't want to sound as if like, oh, we've got it all, you know, sorted and everything. So there was a, it was a learning curve, uh, more or less, I would say. Like I said, I came from the NGO background, and a lot of the times, initially, there was some confusion on how to communicate. Do I use, you know, the whole serious medical approach that the NGOs generally use? You know, just to, let's just, for example, you give all the merits and demerits and all that, you know, just give people enough information to make an informed decision and that sort of thing. So we started with that side. Did we? I don't even remember. <laughs> I think there was, a, there was a little bit of times when we tried, you know, going the medical side. You know, let's just, for example, this is what an emergency contraceptive bill con- does. These are the pros and these are the cons and all the blah, 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 blah to it. And then there was the other time when we felt like, okay, let's do this really, really completely on the social side where we then had to, you know, use, I wouldn't say shock images, but, you know, sexual images in a way, you know, there was this, oh, sex sales. So, you know, you have a a sex-related product. So why aren't you selling this product with sex? And and I discovered that none, neither approaches uh, worked. The people who were drawn to SlideSafe did not, were not, they didn't care for them, you know, all the medical terminology, all the the technical words that we were using in doing some of the conversation, they really wanted to know, is it safe to take emergency contraceptive pill? Yes or no. You know, all those other plenty, plenty information that we were passing on was just going over people's heads. You know, so that wasn't working. And then, of course, they also were very sensitive to seeing sexualized images. It wasn't something that they were comfortable with. And so we had to, you know, stop that. So it took a lot of trial and error and discovering how people were responding. And then we found out that most people responded very well to using people like them. Let's just, for example, you pick an image of a man and a woman who are staring at each other and is reflecting 
acting love and all that, people were responding more positively to that than to a scantily clad uh, woman, you know, who is like, hey, I'm having fun with sex because I'm safe. That sort of thing. It just <laughs> right. uh, was something. Yeah. It's just something that we kind of discovered and we just, okay, so this is what works and this isn't what works. And then we started doing a lot of more of a storytelling. We kind of haven't done a lot of that in a while, but we did a lot of storytelling where we had to use uh, stories to to talk about things. I think, just for example, I think there was one of the articles that we wrote about hepatitis B and a lot of it had to do with from a storytelling point of view where maybe like one-tenth of portion of the whole article was a technical information. The rest of it was about situating hepatitis B in a relationship or in a social situation or environment so that people actually understood um, in that hepatitis B story, we actually went in from a lady who uh, discovered that she had hepatitis B and she'd infected her boyfriend. And, you know, the whole thing was just causing problem with between them. And we're like, are you cheating on me? Are you cheating on me? And it turned out that the lady actually got it from her sister. And the reason she got it from her sister was because they shared spoon in their house. Oh, and so wow. that's how she yeah. got hepatitis B from her sister and then passed it on to, you know, to her, to the boyfriend. So that was, you know, just basically that approach that we found that it was easier to actually fit in the, this medical information into a social um, setting and, you know, do less of the, you know, the technical talk. Uh, so that bit really helped. It's sort of a, a trial and error. We keep just, you know, keep trying. But I think one of the things that we discovered that really works was something that we called positive messaging in the sense that we de-emphasized on, let's just for example, a lot of the messaging around HIV would say, I don't, okay, let me say it in pidgin and then I'll translate it in the normal English. Perfect. So it would say, HIV, no, they show for face, meaning that it doesn't show on the face. You, you can see someone with HIV and immediately recognize that this person has HIV. And so that is a very popular approach to HIV communication in Nigeria. HIV, no, they show for face. But the whole communication bit instills fear in people because what it does is if HIV doesn't show in faces that means every other person that they've been sleeping with may have had hiv it didn't actually push people towards testing it, it basically turned them away from testing because if you cannot look in someone's face and know that this person has hiv and they could just think about all the people that they've been sleeping with who they did not test the fear is automatically that i may have caught it so why go and check Right. Until it finally gets to the point where it starts showing in my face, I'm just going to completely ignore this. So it was that thinking that we had in mind and said, you know, if you instill fear in people, it doesn't actually result in health-seeking behaviors. It basically means people want to, you know, shy away and wait until absolutely they cannot do anything about it. Right. So we went from the side of First of all, from statistics, the likelihood, you know, that you are negative is actually higher than you are positive, you know, for the for population-wide testing. So it was a matter of test yourself so that you can stay negative rather than test yourself because you could be positive. So that was the approach that we then used, you know, to encourage people that the only way to stay negative, we're saying you are already negative. 
The only way to stay negative is by regularly checking yourself. If you don't regularly check yourself and your partner, you wouldn't know the day that you turn up if you know the data you become positive yeah, so that absolutely. was the approach that we used you know by telling people testing is the right thing to do that is a way to stay negative and i just want to add that one of your first ideas for branding the company was sex in a box and unfortunately that did not yes. uh, <laughs> that that did not it work too well too- with your your market yeah Yes, it was too direct. And also, number one, it was too direct. And also, number two, it brought me quite a number of people who thought what we were doing was like a thing, that kind of a thing. (laughs) So, yeah. (laughs) So, that wasn't the field I wanted to play in. So, I really had to stop explaining to people that, no, we do not link you up to women you can have sex with. This is just purely so that you can have safe sex. Yeah, so we just decided to change the name and do something that was, you know, easier to swallow. Right. You know, then sex box was way too direct. So, we had to change the name. And how many boxes have you sold at this point? I think 630. Okay. Not a lot, but, you know, it was a lot more than we thought we were going to sell because it was like, I don't know what's going to happen here. I don't know the terrain. I don't know how people are going to respond to this. I didn't have anything to stand on and to say, oh, this is how X and Y reacted to this. So this is how X and Y will react to this. So I was like, okay, fine, go ahead and do this. Because this was the, the first, as at the time that Slicef started, we were the first people that I was aware of that were trying to sell directly or test kits selling it directly to people and we're just doing it exclusively that this was what we were doing was exclusively sexual health products and we are not you know directing you to a service provider to go and pick it up but we are actually the service provider ourselves so we didn't have anybody who was playing in that field and so we didn't know you know how it was going some of the other people who were uh, some of the suppliers of the products that we got it from we're selling through pharmacies so, but we weren't selling through farmers, we were selling directly to people. So we didn't really have any example to say, okay, this is how well these people did, or this isn't how well these people did. So we'll know, maybe we'll do better or we'll do worse or all that sort of thing. So we just didn't have that. So it was a little bit of, let's go out to see what's going to happen. Right. And I mean, that's kind of, that's the downside of being a first mover is that, you know, you don't have any model to look to for inspiration. I mean, you're creating it. So, and because you have to do so much education in your market, kind of the uptake is going to be a bit slower, I imagine. Yes. One of the things we've kind of, what I, I kind of think is a good thing is, you know, we have people like WH sending us an email and asking us to know more about what we do. So for us, it's like, okay, if we're not able to, you know, uh, sell 5,000 or 6,000 boxes, you know, directly, we may have some some upselling through WHO. Because one of the things that we were doing, a lot of the implementing partners were not doing was, you know, going directly to people was more or less an on-demand uh, service provision that a lot of the service implementing partners are not doing. Uh, typically, a lot of implementing partners, you have to come to them rather than in the way that we were working, where we were going to people. So that kind of gave us a little bit of an edge for a population where 
privacy, protecting people's privacy was, you know, was key. Well, and I want to transition a bit to talk about your experience working in accelerators and incubators, because in 2017, you participated in a three-month accelerator program run by Co-Creation Hub, which is Nigeria's leading startup hub. And then you were also admitted to the Tony Alumalu Entrepreneurship Program. But what I found very interesting is that you had applied to these programs the previous year and you didn't get in. So I'd love to know how did you change your approach to writing your applications to successfully be admitted? Okay. Wow, you really, really, (laughs) you really, really searched me. You know, I try to be prepared. (laughs) Okay. All right. I think the... I applied to uh, CC Hub and Tony Lumelu in the same year, and both organizations uh, rejected me. And at the time that I applied, I was still at the idea stage. Then again, yeah. So let me okay, let me put it this way: I was still at the idea stage of the first this idea that I wanted to do. So this was at the point where I was still conceptualizing everything. And then I did the application and I didn't get any, someone from CC Hobbs, you know, replied and said that he just didn't think what I was selling was going to be enough to actually get a business going for that. So he said that, you know, it wasn't, he just didn't think I had enough to get people to actually buy and to keep buying. And then Tony Lumelu just basically didn't, when I didn't get selected, I just knew there was really no feedback. So I couldn't tell, you know, what was it that was wrong with it or not. The following year, at this point, I had started Slide Safe. And this was my third month on Slide Safe. Well, at this point, it was still called Sex in the Box. I started Sex in the Box. It was my third month. That, but no, second month, not third month. It was the second month of it that I applied for both of them. So as at the time, I had got like 10 customers at this point. Like 10 people had paid uh, for this service, you know, no matter, even at the, the very crude stage that it was at, you know, 10 people had actually paid for it. So I think maybe having to have said that this number of people have paid for it, maybe it kind of said, okay, maybe if 10 people have paid for it, more, you know, a thousand people will pay for it. I don't know. Or maybe at that point, I was a little bit less green, you know, with the whole entrepreneurship something. And I could, you know, I'm able to construct my idea in a way that made more sense. Maybe the first applications that I sent in, you know, showed someone who was way too naive and way too inexperienced. And maybe by the second time, it was like, okay, she's learned some things. Because I did do a lot of learning between the first time I did the application and the second time I did the application. You know, I was kind of teaching myself about entrepreneurship. So I didn't know anything, but I knew a lot more than I knew the previous year. And also during the time of researching the initial business idea that I had, and then, you know, dropping that and picking another thing, I'd actually learned a number of things. So I think maybe I was able to make a better argument about the business idea than the first time when I was completely, absolutely nothing. (laughs) So maybe, I don't know. Right. And you, you know, like you said in the beginning, you were refining your idea. I mean, you had to pivot to get to SlideSafe. And so it was when you were successfully got into the programs, it was with this idea of SlideSafe. And you could also say, hey, I've tested this idea and there's demand for it. Mm. Yes, 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 I suppose so. And what were the major takeaways from both experiences? 
Oh, the, I had a very uh, fantastic mentor at the Tonelumelu. And so she was the person who actually told me that I was speaking too much grammar in my communication. And she said, nobody's listening to you. As in, nobody's reading this. Like that I wasn't talking to people with the language that they understood. She basically said that I was talking to people as if I was talking to uh, people in the medical field understood what I was talking about that I had to realize that for most people they don't know what it is that I'm talking about they're not going to say they don't know what it is that I'm talking about they're just going to read the first paragraph and then they would you know go off meanwhile you know the key message is maybe in the third or the fourth paragraph they wouldn't read up to that point and they're just going to go so I, that was one key thing that I got out of from her and another thing that she was really key to was she kind of told me that I shouldn't focus on what it is that Slicef is today. The Slicef could be a lot more than what it was today. So it was just basically, this may be the products you have now. This may not always be the products you have now. Just always think about that. There, to, what she was basically saying is that the need that I was trying to, the problem I was trying to solve, there are so many ways to solve it than how I am solving it now. So I shouldn't get you know too caught up with how I'm solving it now and not be open to alternative uh, ways of solving it. So we'll just basically don't get too caught up with this. So that was a very good advice because it really got me thinking that what was the problem statement? I mean, what is the main thing? What is the main problem that I'm trying to solve? It is not just in delivering this product. The main problem that I was trying to solve was the lack of privacy and the lack of sensitivity in the way sexual health services are being provided. So at the core of that, there were so many ways, you know, that I could solve this problem. This, what Slice is today, doesn't have to always be, or rather it doesn't have to be the only way to solve this problem in the future. So it was really very good. And then Sissy Hobbit also helped because it was really hands-on. Up until then, you know, I didn't quite appreciate the the beauty in simple communication. Uh, so C-Hub's uh, accelerator program really, really helped with the communication. They really, you know, helped in like keep it simple, stupid. You know, you hear it, you hear <laughs> it, and you hear it, you know, but they really helped in crafting it, you know, because we had to do a lot of exercises and had to do a lot of editing. And I, when I look at my pitch deck today, and, you know, the first pitch deck that I ever attempted, you know, there's a world of difference uh, between the two of them. And that's because of, you know, the things that I learned at CC Hub. It was really amazing. Now, I, you know, when I think about problem statements, I'm able to, like, think about it in one sentence, you know. And when I think about a, a solution, I'm able to, you know, think about it in one sentence. So these were things that I, at that point, I didn't know, you know, but they were able to, like, really craft it and get me to think in a different way. It was really good. Okay. And then two, I want to clarify just on the ordering of the products. Is it really yeah. more of an, is it more mobile first? So do you have an app or is it using like a USSD code so people with a feature phone can also order your products? How does the ordering work? Okay. So at the moment, it's just purely on the website or through social media. Like people do send us messages on social media and said, oh, I like this. I want this, you know, and then they give us the order right there on social media and then we now enter it into the website. 
uh, what a majority of people just prefer to go directly to the website and make the other. I didn't quite want to do an app, you know, because after a while, there's so many apps that there are. And so when you have an app that does only one thing, and then you have an app that does a lot of things, it starts struggling for space in people's phones. Because I know a lot of the times when my phone is full of apps and my memory card you know, is kind of complaining that, you know, way too much, way too much. The apps that I delete, I delete first are the ones that I use less often. You know, the ones that I use every day, I keep them. The rest of them, I don't, you know, I kind of delete them. And it was a lot more expensive, you know, building an app than having, hosting a website. For most people, especially in Nigeria, if you just have an app that doesn't have a website, you know, it kind of has a like I just kind of discovered a lot of the applications that I use frequently are those that have apps and websites. So I could start on the app and finish up on the website and, you know, or start on the website and finish up on the app and things like that. I'm not restricted to one way of, you know, having that interaction. So I knew that if I was going to create an app, I had to create a website. And it just felt that at this stage, I can actually start with a website and then see how things go and see how people respond. And you know, do I, if I come up with a point, a maybe another solution, then I can now integrate. Let's just, for example, if there are five or six solutions that SliceSafe is providing, then you can create an app because then you know that if one thing isn't bringing the person to the app, the other solution can be bringing the person to the app. So there's always something else that's coming to the app to do, you know, beyond just to make an other. I never had, what was it called, Jumia app on my phone because the problem was I could go on the website and make the thing and I wasn't buying all the time. So I could go for a month, two months, and I've never bought anything from Jumia. And that app was, you know, on my phone, clogging up my storage. So I had to go and delete it. Yeah, so that was just basically the thinking behind that. Well, and I'd love to know, what have been the challenges of being a female entrepreneur in Nigeria? I would have said no challenge because... You know, I mean, let's just, for example, when it comes to, you know, meeting people and, you know, but one time I was actually sort of fishing for a co-founder and there was this guy that indicated interest in coming in, you know, at the time that he did this, I was running a program with Sissy Hope and I took him there, you know, to introduce him and somebody said, lovely, you, you needed a man. And until that time, I actually hadn't thought there was any difference my gender made to the business because if let's just for example if you were someone who was shy about talking about sex you know then me being a female would be a problem you know because of the way people receive sex you know when it's coming from females but i'm not conscious of that i don't care you know the interpretation of being a female talking about sex means that you are open or open for business or something like that so i wasn't before i went into this i knew from the beginning that people were going to have this impression of me and it wasn't going to bother me so I was going to go on ahead and do what I had to do and it wasn't going to bother me at all. So I didn't think that having the man was going to be of any advantage. You know, but then the person says, oh, good, you need other, you know, it's good to have a man. And what he was basically saying was that some people were going to feel more comfortable having a man talk to them about life safe than having me as a female talk to them about life safe. And to be honest, up until that time, I actually hadn't thought there was going to be, it didn't occur to me 
you know, that's of all the things that occurred to me that I was going to have any problem with. It wasn't that somebody was going to feel uncomfortable talking about sex with me because I was a female. It didn't occur to me at that time, you know, and then this person said it and it was like, oh, wow. I didn't think about it. And then again, the, you know, the whole relationship with the person didn't pan out and couldn't uh, go on to have a formal uh, co-founding relationship and that bit left. And I didn't try to look for another co-founder after that. So it was just basically that. Beyond that, I think the other thing, it has more to do with being a mother than being a woman in the sense that I'm always very conscious about coming home in time for my son. You know, when I have events, I want to, you know, do and come back home often early so I don't come back when my son is sleeping and things like that. So I would say it had less to do with being female. But one thing I have quite realized is when you go for business events, business uh, programs, or even the accelerator program, there are always so many men. Exactly. And so few right. women. Right. Yeah. So that bit kind of makes you feel a little like an outsider of a, of a bit, you know, that's way, always waste so many men. And it just kind of, you wonder, where are all the women? Like, where are all of you? Like, are we not doing this? So yeah, that bit doesn't feel very good, but uh, it's all right. Right. I mean, even for the podcast, you know, it's like I've looked at my past guests and I've interviewed one woman entrepreneur. And which I feel a lot of shame about because there are amazing African women entrepreneurs out there. But when you're looking to get people on the show, you know, it's kind of, it's just easier. Like men are the low hanging fruit and there's just kind of like, there are more of them. So it, but yeah, I yeah. mean, it's kind of when there are less women that are represented, it's, yeah, sometimes, like you said, you can feel like an outsider going to these events and, and it can make it harder, I imagine. Yes. Yes, it does, especially when, you know, well, Nigeria is, you know, a lot of the time it's gotten quite okay. So you don't have people say some say sexist things. But once in a while, someone will make a sexist comment and you'll be like, oh my God, how do I respond to this? Why, you know, come at this person with the anger and the righteousness that I feel? Or do you just, you know, like ignore it? I'm like, okay, I pick my fights. So sometimes, you know, that really happens, which is not nice. But, you know, at the end of the day, there really needs to be more females. I know some of the things that people say is that females do business. You know, there's a lot of female-owned businesses in Nigeria. It's just that a lot of them are not doing it as, how do I say, in a startup kind of way. It's more or less like, you know, they're doing in the commerce, the normal merchants um, right. a yeah. bit, you know, the Selling. way business has yeah. always been done. Yes. So it's a bit different from the way that it's been done. I'd love to know, what is the best advice you've ever received as an entrepreneur? And also on the flip side, what's the worst advice you've gotten? Okay. The best advice I would get would be from my mentor. And he said, don't don't chase money. It's very difficult if you don't have money and somebody tells you don't chase money. Uh, right. It's very difficult. I imagine. But, you know, but it was, it's a very good advice because what it then means is that you're not... Let me use, for example... Uh, the first time that I was contacted by WHO, I was quite surprised by that. And then someone else actually reached out to me and told me that somebody in WHO actually told her to get in touch with me. And at this point, we were not, I think we had, we had sold about 100 or 150 uh, packs at that time. And because our, our packs are quite uh, low cost, 
in terms of money, I didn't need money at all. And and it, for me, it was very out, like, oh, you know, how is it that someone in WHO knows who I am? Because at, you know, when I was in university, I'd always imagined that, oh, I want to work in WHO because I really, really, you know, hold them to high regard. So I was really surprised, you know, to know that someone in WHO had actually known about what we were doing, you know, enough to actually access, tell someone, go meet this person. So that was very good. And that really helped me that it's good. If you have, if let's just, for example, if I had, you know, huge amount of money, alternative source of income, you know, then it's not so much of a pressure, you know, to, oh, you need to sell, you need to make a lot of money, you need to be able to feed with this money that you make from the business and all that. But at the end of the day, some of the times when I feel a little bit pressured, you know, to say, oh, I haven't sold as much as I would like. I kind of remember, you know, that advice, a person who said, don't chase money. And so he was basically, don't chase money. You know, the first couple of months, uh, years is going to be really, really difficult, you know, but then when the money comes, the money really comes, you know. So th- well, that was the person's advice and don't chase money. It's a very fantastic advice, you know, but it can be quite... <laughs> It can be quite difficult. Right. Hard to follow. Yeah. And then I think the the worst advice, I don't think I've actually gotten the the worst advice. Uh, Or I don't know, maybe like misleading advice, because I think if you are interested in entrepreneurship and you're living in Africa, you can, a lot of, if you're reading books, you know, that are geared towards developed markets, you know, they're going to give you advice that's just not applicable to frontier markets like Nigeria, you know, or Kenya. And sometimes it can just be misguided and it's not really adapted to the needs of being an aspiring entrepreneur in Sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah. In that case, I have one. So there was this Fledge, I think they're in the US, it's a US accelerator program or something like that. It's Fledge. So I was speaking with, because I went through the interview and I didn't get into it. But, you know, I spoke with her, I got to some stage of the selection program and then I was called and the person who spoke to me on the phone, you know, after I I talked to him about the product, he said, you have to find a way to get people to buy this at a subscription rather than a one-time sale. Because right now we do one-time sale. Most of the people come to buy, but much of the time people just buy once, pay for what they want, and then they go. If they need it again, they'll come back. But for the most part, they just do a one-time payment. And then this person was like, you need to do subscription, subscription. So he wasn't the only person who actually kept on pushing for subscription. Okay. I think at a yeah, point... To build been, revenues, right? Yes, as a means of revenue, you know, rather than people buying one-off, people should actually buy as a subscription. And at the point I was feeling really bad about it, that I wasn't able to get anybody to sign up because I actually did try, you know, to get people to subscribe rather than just buy and pay. You're actually subscribing to, you know, for delivery for the most part. And I was feeling rather sad about it that I would talk to a couple of customers and users and they just wanted to just, I just want to buy this now. We'll talk about the subscription one later on. You know, no matter what, you know, whatever appealing uh, thing that I dangled in front of them to get them to actually try subscription, they just wanted to just do the payment now and be done with that. So I was feeling re- rather bad about it. And so something that's told me, why don't you go and actually research 
you know, subscription markets in Africa. And I couldn't find any subscription product that, of anything that was similar to mine. The places where, you know, people were doing subscription were in ISP, like Internet Service Provision and Movie, DSTV and on Netflix, because a lot of people do subscription for Netflix. So these were where people were basically doing subscription but when it came to products like this most people were doing one-off purchase rather than subscriptions i know there's this supermarket in nigeria uh supermats that tried to get me to do a subscription they really you know threw a lot of uh, offers at my face you know to prompt me to subscribe to them and i was not interested at all it actually i thought about it that if i didn't want to subscribe to supermats and you know whatever feeling it was that i had that made me say nah I don't want to subscribe. When I need things from there, I'll go and buy. I don't want to subscribe to them. That may be the reason that people were not, you know, interested in subscribing to SlideSafe. That maybe I should not, you know, keep backing at this tree and just focus on how to improve my user's experience. So, Why yeah. is that, you think, um, kind of the reticence or the lack of uptake for subscription services? Just the cost? People don't want to be locked into something? It's not so much as in cost. Okay, how do I say? It's just for example, the first time that I did a subscription, what's it called? I have an ISP, right, in Nigeria, where they give you one month off if you pay for six months ahead of time and two months uh, free if you pay for a year. I have been using them for two years, three years now, and I've been paying every month. I would rather pay every month <laughs> than pay pay six months and get one month free the fear that for some reason i'm going to pay for six months and people are going to screw up and then my money is locked with you is there is high so there's right. still a lot of there's still a lot to be done about trust between merchants and the users in nigeria a lot still has to happen it's not quite there there's a lot of uh, People who want to, how do I say, minimize their risk. There's a lot of risk minimization that we kind of bear in mind that I would rather pay this now. I know I'll be paying more, but I'll rather pay this now than having to have my money locked down by these people. And then tomorrow, if there are stories, I won't be able to get my money back, you know, because we don't have, let's use, for example, PayPal, where if you make a payment through PayPal and you have a, a dispute with the merchant, PayPal pays you back. We don't have, you know, things like around here. So if there's any disputes between certain merchants, the user is basically relying on the good nature of the merchants to refund their money. The chances the rest of their money will not be refunded is high. So it may be something that the fintech guys need to work on, you know, just to reduce, you know, that uh, suspicion that users have about what's going to happen to their money if they're committed and things don't go the way it was envisaged to go. So that's possibly a fintech solution that may come. But for now, there's still a lot of high uh, distrust between merchants and and customers. And also because there are a lot of SMEs in Nigeria, but you just don't know how long they will be around because Nigeria is an incredibly difficult place to have business. Right, exactly. You find a, a business you think is flourishing one day and then the next day they are gone. 
And imagine if you had you've put that money with these people, you really have no way of getting your money back. You know, you have no way of reaching the people and getting your money back. So this is some of the it's kind of the environment that you know that doesn't quite allow for for subscription. I mean, DSTV makes you pay every month. It's not even automatic payment. So the, a lot of the subscription-based product services we have in Nigeria is not direct debits. You know, they don't typically go to, into your account and take your money and stuff like that. You kind of, every month you have to go into your bank and, and make a payment. Right. You know, you know yeah, it's just, yeah, it's pay-as-you-go, essentially. Yeah. Yes, it's just that right now they have your information saved. Is You're more or less like coming back, but you're paying every month, you know, rather than, you know, automatic deduction. Right. Well, that's a great point. And if you could take a one-year sabbatical from SlideSafe and you could go anywhere else yeah. in Africa to learn and improve your business, where would you go and why? I'm actually taking a two-year sabbatical from SlideSafe starting in August. Oh, all right. <laughs> well, yeah. what good timing. Uh, <laughs> this question had yeah. a lot of really good timing then. Yeah, I'm going for my PhD in the U.S. and I'm going to be away for two years uh, for the touch course. And then I was going to come back and um, during the research uh, side of it and come back and, and continue with SlideSafe. So, and the reason I chose to go was because one of the things that I really really this well i would say one of the things i didn't know at the time i started and one of the and the thing something that i quickly learned in the course of the work is that health communication for service delivery is completely different in a business industry where you're actually asking people to make payments uh, from the NGO. So I know how I'm a bit familiar with the way health communication in NGOs are in the sense that somebody else is paying. So the user is not the payer. So the way you communicate to the user to get them to use the product is very different in a situation where you're actually communicating with the user to make them to pay for a product. It is especially important in Nigeria where uh, you know, health payment is more cu- health is more of a curative form system than a preventive. So we the health system in Nigeria is heavily leaning towards the clinical side, you know, rather than the public health side. A lot of what we do in public health is fire brigade formula. Maybe there's an outbreak, there's there's this outbreak, and then everybody goes into panic. You know, this is basically how we work with public health rather than having to solve a problem before it becomes a problem. And so it was, I really wanted to go and learn about, you know, communication because a lot of what we were doing was value communicating people, the value of preventing HIV preventing syphilis, preventing hepatitis B, you know, preventing STAs. And before you get it, like, you want to make sure this doesn't come to you. And I didn't quite have a module. Well, you know, I don't feel like I know enough in this area. You know, I think I feel like I need to know more, basically. And and I felt like a PhD offers me an opportunity to learn in an academic setting and also to learn what's going on, you know, with the rest of the world, how the different people are going. And just take a little bit of a break from, you know, worrying about how many boxes am I selling and just, you know, be on the knowledge acquisition aspect of it. So that's just basically what I'm doing. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And where are you going to be studying doing your PhD? I'm going to St. Louis University. 
Okay, fantastic. Because you, you make an, that's such an interesting insight that healthcare in Nigeria is driven by that there's such a lack of preventive healthcare and it's all about curing what, you know, it's all about curing the diseases that people have and not actually preventing them. That's really interesting. Yeah, I think that may, it may be the same thing that happens in, in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, but I know it is a Nigerian problem. And Florida, I'd love to wrap up our conversation by asking you if you could give one piece of actionable advice to an aspiring African entrepreneur, what would it be? Okay, don't spend all your money at once. I mean, you think, really, you will think you have the, the best, you know, you have it. Like, oh, I have this idea and this idea is revolutionary and all that. And then you go and sink all your money into it. And then you discover that, ah, uh, the market does not react in the way that you thought the market would. So, yeah, don't spend all your money all at once, you know, because the truth is you can only improve as long as you're in business. The minute you stop being in business, you cannot improve anymore. I mean, that's done for you. So the only way you can grow is to stay. So find a way to stay as long as you can, you know, before, you know, the money rolls in. You know, this was an advice I was given the first time I didn't listen until I finished my money. Right. <laughs> so, so by the second time that I raised money, you know, I really, I became smart, uh, became wiser. My mentor then told me, watch your bond rates. So that is the, the advice I'll give everybody. Watch your bond rates. Don't spend all your money at once. Okay. And, and I mean, you... you may think it's a very, sorry, I just wanted to say, because what happens in the beginning is when you're starting, there are a lot of people who are going to promise you that the service that they're providing to you, you know, is going to bring in the customer. And then you think, oh, sure, let me spend it. I'm going to get the money back. And then you spend it and then the customer doesn't come. And meanwhile, you can go back and get your money back. Right. Would you say something in particular to aspiring female African entrepreneurs? Just do it, really. You know, do it. Do it and go into it with a singleness of mind. One of the things, you know, that women have to, especially African women, I probably not unique to us, but, you know, one of the things that we have to deal with is that we always have to appear you know, took to our family first before our business. And I won't say pretend, but, you know, your family may be very important to you, but people want to see you say how much of your family is important to you because for some reason it makes you an approaching person. And so for a female entrepreneur who may not want to project their family life first, and doesn't think that, oh, this doesn't have to play part in anything. I tell the person, be bold enough to do it. Because the thing is, Slicefe is not the most family-friendly business I could have done. A lot of times people had to ask, my mom, my family asked, what does your husband think about this? Because he has an image. So if you're very conscious of what are people going to say, what are people going to think, you're never going to be able to do this that you need to do. So just forget all that. Forget all that noise and just do it. Okay, that's that's great advice. And where can our listeners find you on social media? I'm very active on Facebook as myself. I talk a lot about feminism. I talk a lot about gender equality. I talk a lot about sexual consent because that's one of the things that is very, very important to me. I think there is not enough awareness being done on sexual consent. And so it's something that I'm very, very passionate about. So and on Facebook, I'm very, very, I'm told I'm in not case, but that's fine. So anybody who... <laughs> 
anybody who likes that kind of thing someone who doesn't sugarcoat it you know they can find me on facebook i'm also on linkedin but i'm a lot more subdued on linkedin so i'm also on linkedin and i'm also on instagram not so much on instagram instagram and twitter but not so much on those i'm a lot more active on facebook and on linkedin okay and i'll make sure to include all of those social links on the show notes page well thank you so much for coming on the show florida it was such a pleasure to chat with you thank you That's all for this episode of Young African Entrepreneur. But we can use your help in evolving this show through your feedback and suggestions by engaging with us on social media at YAE Podcast. You can also visit yaepodcast.com for show notes, resources, and information on today's episode. That's yaepodcast.com. It's your time, your journey, your Africa, Young African Entrepreneur.